a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 10:15 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. Today we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book that we call Judges, the book of Judges, the seventh book in our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then number seven, Judges. There's a little bit of a distinction between the book of Judges and the period of the Judges. The book of Judges that we have in our Bible gives us a history of Israel from the death of Joshua, which was around 1,375 years before Jesus was born, 1375 B.C., up to around 1075 B.C., so about a 300-year period. But the period of the Judges actually continues a little bit longer on through the life of Samuel. You may remember Samuel was actually Israel's very last judge. But we don't read about Samuel in the book of Judges. We read about Samuel in the book that we call First Samuel. So the period of the Judges lasted all the way from the death of Joshua, the beginning of the book of Judges, all the way through the book of Judges and on into 1 Samuel through the reign of the first king of Israel, who was Saul. 1 Samuel 7.15, we read that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So you got to include that in the period of Judges. In 1 Samuel, we actually learn that Samuel died only about a year before King Saul died. So around 1011 B.C., you remember Saul and his sons died in battle with the Philistines in 1010 B.C. So there's a lot of overlap here. Well, some overlap here in the period of Judges and the period of the kings, namely the life of Judge Samuel and the life of King Saul. They overlapped. The account of the death of King Saul is right at the end of 1 Samuel. It brings the book to an end. In the first part of the book of Judges, up to about chapter 3, verse 7, we learn that Israel did not complete the conquest of the promised land like God had commanded them to. We also learn that, horribly enough, they began to worship those gods, those pagan gods of those unconquered peoples all around them. And we learned a pattern. When you read that section, you see this pattern that gets repeated again and again. They rebel against God. They fall into sin. And then as judgment for their sins, they would be terribly oppressed by some idolatrous people that lived around them. And when they were oppressed and felt enough pain, they would cry out to God and God would send them another deliverer. But they never, ever listened to any of the deliverers very long. And so quickly, within a generation or so, they'd fall right back into the same pattern over and over and over. So in chapter 2, we read that after the generation of Joshua had died out, and you know, Joshua and his peers, the next generation, forsook God. Look at verse 11 here. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And they followed the pattern again and again and again and again. It just almost gets tiresome, doesn't it? I mean, over and over, it's the same thing. It's like God's trying to say something to us, how easy it is for one generation to move away from him. Beginning at chapter 3, verse 7, God begins to tell us about some of the very specific judges, the specific deliverers that he raised up. They're called judges, and we always talk about them as judges. But the way we define our words today, it might be more appropriate to call it, I don't know, the book of generals or the book of captains. You know, They're, they're mainly military leaders. So first he raised up Othniel, who delivered them from a Mesopotamian king. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 12, Ehud. You remember Ehud? He delivered them from the Moabite king named Eglon. You remember that story? Uh, you remember Ehud boldly went into the presence of this wicked Moabite king named Eglon. Said he had a present for him. <laughs> and when he got close to Eglon, Ehud was able to kill Eglon by thrusting a two-edged dagger that he had in his, hidden in his hands uh, into Eglon's belly. Yeah, pretty gruesome. And then chapter 3, verse 31, Shamgar delivered them from the Philistines. We get to chapter 4. Many of you are familiar with chapter 4. We read about Deborah and Barak. And Jael delivered them from a Canaanite king named Jabin. And he had a very infamous general. You remember Sisera? Sometimes we call him Tent Peg Sisera. You remember him? You remember that account? Sisera was fleeing Barak and he, and he was tired. So he went to J.L.'s tent. She motioned him to come on in. He was tired, and she, she kind of lulled him to sleep. And as soon as he fell asleep, you remember what happened? J.L. took a tent peg and drove it right through Sisera's temple, killed him while he slept. <laughs> so we got Ehud and J.L. They're pretty close. Years ago, <laughs> when Vicky and I decided it was time for us to go ahead and get our carry licenses, we named her little revolver J.L. And we named my little revolver Ehud <laughs> after this passage of scripture. Seems like an appropriate name. In chapter 5, we have the song of praise of Deborah and how she gives glory to God for sending a rainstorm to render the iron chariots of the enemy useless and give Israel a victory. So God supernaturally intervened there. In chapter 6, we find one of the more familiar portions of Judges. We read about the oppression of the Israelites by the Midianites and the call of Gideon. 
Chapter 7 tells us how God used Gideon and his 300 men to defeat a huge Midianite army. Chapter 8, we find Gideon pursuing and eventually killing two escaped kings of Midian. And then we find the Israelites trying to make Gideon into a king, which he very wisely refused. He would not accept that. But even then, they were wanting to be like the nations around them. They wanted a king. Later on, they got Saul, you remember. And then we find Gideon messing up. He made a golden ephod. Whether he had his intentions were good or not, we're not sure. But the ephod was one of the garments that the high priests were supposed to wear. And we're not told why he made it. But some scholars think maybe he was trying to compete with the tabernacle at Shiloh. Shiloh was in the area of the tribe of Ephraim. Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. And there was a lot of competition between Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember, these were the two tribes of Joseph, sons of Joseph. So anyway, he may have made this golden ephod to, to, to keep it in his own city, hoping it would be a way he could hear from God. When he quit hearing from God, maybe God would speak through this. I don't know. You may remember the Levitical priest wore an ephod, which was associated with the Urim and the Thummim that they carried in the breastplate in order to hear from God. In any case, that golden ephod of Gideon became a snare for the Israelites because they used it as an idolatrous object of worship. So it, it led them away from God instead of toward God. The record of Gideon's death is given at the end of chapter 8, and again we find the Israelites immediately going back into pagan worship. What did you expect? This is what they do. Chapter 9 tells us about the life of Gideon's son. His name was Abimelech. He killed 70 of his brothers, very bloodthirsty men, in order to consolidate his power in Israel, and he, he was trying to be the king. And the city of Shechem you remember Shechem? It lies there nestled between the Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They actually accepted him as their king. Shechem did. But the youngest son of, of Gideon, Jotham, escaped the slaughter of his brothers. And Jotham is the one who went up on Mount Gerizim and cried out that very famous parable of the trees and the bramble. You remember that in, in the book of Judges? But he was using that to warn Shechem, which was listening to him up there on the mountain, uh, that it was foolish to make Abimelech their king. Well, eventually Shechem did try to rebel against Abimelech, and Abimelech wound up capturing and destroying Shechem. And then he thought, I'm going to move against some of the other cities around. So he went to a town called Thebes, but there was a woman there. <laughs> Abimelech got careless. There was a woman there in a tower who dropped a millstone from the tower and crushed his head. And he knew he was dying, and he asked his armor bearer, just kill me. I don't want it to be said that a woman killed me. <laughs> So that brought an ignominious end to the life of Abimelech. Pretty sad story. Chapter 10 mentions two more judges, Tola from the tribe of Issachar and Jair from Gilead on the east side of the Jordan. You remember the east side is where the tribes of Gad and Manasseh lived. And we read more about rebellion and idolatry and oppression from the Philistines and the Ammonites. Chapter 11 tells us about the judge Jephthah, also from Gilead, and his victory over the Ammonites and his very foolish vow regarding his daughter. We won't go into that now. You might want to read that later. Chapter 12, we find the Ephraimites angry <laughs> because Jephthah didn't call them to go into battle with him. And they were so upset, they said, we'll just show you. So they attacked him. So here you have Israelites attacking other Israelites. We learn that Jephthah's army killed 42,000 Ephraimites. It was an awful, awful period of time. After Jephthah, there are three more judges mentioned in chapter 12, Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon. And then chapters 13 through 16 contain the record of Samson. You remember Samson? Holly preached on the life of Samson just a few weeks ago, a wonderful sermon about his life, and we're going to learn a lot from Samson. By the way, Samuel was probably born 
during the time when Samson was the judge of Israel. We don't know that for sure, but that seems to fit best. And then when you get to chapter 17 and then 18, 19, 20, and 21, 21 is the last chapter of the book, we read some of the most awful, sordid details of what life was like in Israel uh, when every man was doing what seemed right in his own eyes. And God gives us that verse twice in this section of Scripture. He kind of bookends this horrific section of Scripture, starting at 17, verse 6, and ending at 21, verse 25. That's the last verse in the book of Judges. And here's what he said. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Listen to this. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Maybe the most famous part of Judges is that verse. Now, as you know, we live in the same kind of culture today, right? I'm assuming when you hear those words, you don't think of the period of Judges. You think of American 21st century, right? We have lots of people today who want to talk about my truth, or you've got your truth, I've got my truth, or we'll talk about their truth or his truth. Oprah Winfrey popularized this. <laughs> Remember, she used to talk about, what's your truth? Tell me your truth. <laughs> I'll tell you my truth. One of the things I try really hard to do at Cross Creek where I teach is to help kids understand that that kind of talk about your truth and my truth and their truth and his truth and all, that it's it's silly, but it's also dangerous. You and I don't get to decide what truth is. Truth is what corresponds to reality. We don't make it up up here. It's what's real. But our culture, and you know this, I know I'm not telling you anything new. I'm just underlining what you already know. So you can say amen. Our culture has imbibed deeply into this poison as well. And I can say now, well, my truth is I'm a woman. There are people doing that. I could go further. I could say, well, I'm a black person or uh, I'm actually a 25 year old. I'm not 76 (laughs) or actually I'm six foot five. I'm not five foot eight. I I could make up my own truth in my own brain. But all that's nonsense, isn't it? I mean, it's, at best, it's silly, but at worst, it gets to be very dangerous. It's a dangerous kind of delusion and confusion. And, and you would almost think people had to be joking about it, wouldn't you, when you read what they say. But they're not joking. And it leads to a culture deciding that a man whose truth says he's a woman can, can win a swimming championship by competing against real women who are true women, and he beats them all. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's where we are now. It's, it's what leads to giving dangerous hormone treatments or maybe even radical sex change surgery to a confused kid, a boy who thinks his truth is that he's a girl. He's just confused, bewildered, and he's confused about life. And, and we just give into it. That's his truth. It's, it's really dangerous. Why? Because everybody's doing what seems right in their own eyes. It's like the period of judges all over again. When you read through this entire book of Judges, you come away feeling, whoa, this is heavy. And you feel astounded and, and of course, very saddened at that where that kind of thinking leads people, where we wind up going. Would you have ever dreamed, most of you are not as old as I am, but, but as old as I am, a few decades ago, I would never dreamed that we would get where we are now by simply letting everybody decide what's right for himself in his own eyes. <laughs> That's where we are. And it's amazing and it's astounding. And you would think, how can this be true? But here we are. 
By the way, most Bible scholars say that just because these chapters come after the record we have of Samson, that doesn't necessarily mean they occurred chronologically after the time of Samson. Most scholars think these things are events that occurred through the whole period of Judges, not necessarily at the very end of it. It's at the end of the book, but that doesn't mean it's at the end of the period. We just can't be sure precisely when these different events actually occurred in the book of Judges, especially these chapters at the end. Got the general time period. We know they happened after the death of Joshua. We know they happened before the ministry of Samuel and the life of King Saul. But getting more specific than that is pretty tough. It's even difficult to know for sure when these different judges served during that period of time because it's possible that some of the judges even overlapped each other chronologically. You know, they weren't necessarily delivering the whole nation. They were just delivering part of the nation that was being oppressed by a different other nation. So they may came from different parts of Israel. They came from different tribes. They may have had different enemies, and they may have been attacking in different parts of the land at the same time. There could have been some overlap. We just know that these events occurred roughly between 1375 and 1075 B.C. So, with that bit of an overview of the entire book, I want us to use the time we have left to zoom in on one of the more prominent of the judges. When I personally think of the book of Judges, I primarily think of two men. You may not, but I do. I think of Gideon. And I think of Samson, and probably because those two are highlighted in most of the children's Bible study books, Bible story books that we, we read our kids, so those two stick in our brain. And since Holly preached about Samson just a few weeks ago, I thought maybe we ought to spend a little time looking at Gideon this morning before we end this study. So let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. Keep in mind what I said about the uncertainty of the dates, but having said that, a good guess for the date of Gideon is probably around 1170 B.C., about 200 years after the death of Joshua, about 70 years before the birth of Samuel, just to try to keep it in context. That should be kind of close. Chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So, once again, the Lord brought up all these enemies against Israel, Midian in this case, as an act of judgment for their sin. But listen, we gotta we got to see this as a little bit more than just judgment. Many times when God brings judgment into our lives, it's also an act of mercy. Let me tell you how that works. Usually, if judgment's necessary in our lives, we, I'm certain they, in the, in the period of the Judges, we, we tend not to interpret it as mercy. We think, wait, wait, God's not being merciful. He's being judgmental. <laughs> it may not feel like mercy. But when you think about it, if God had not brought up these enemies against them, it seems very unlikely that they would have cried out to God for help, right? They would have just gone right on down that road of rebellion and idolatry and gotten further and further and further away from God. So God often uses extreme hardship and adversity to drive us to cry out to him, to come back to him. Anytime we go through a difficult period of life, there may be lots of lessons God's trying to teach us through that difficult period, but certainly one of them is always to look to him. It's a reminder we need him, right? Yes, absolutely. Cry out to God. Pain is a tool in God's hand to help us realize our need for him, among other things. Have you ever thought about how dangerous it would be if we couldn't feel any physical pain? Have you ever read about people who couldn't feel physical pain? There are people, for example, 
who suffer from Hansen's disease, leprosy, they can lose their sense of pain and it causes awful problems for them. Pain is what tells me to get my fingers away from the hot stove uh, before it destroys my hand, right? Pain tells me to get to the hospital so I can get an infected appendix treated. If there's no pain, I might not notice it until it burst and I died. We don't like pain. We always want to get rid of pain. But we need to realize it's a wonderful gift from God. And God uses it to get our attention. Of course, these Israelites just acted like yo-yos over and over again. Move away from God. Experience affliction. Cry out to God. Come back maybe for one generation. And then once again, start rebelling against God. Getting away from God again as they get further and further away from the pain. But one of the primary purposes of affliction is to drive us to cry out to God. So every time, guys, please, when you enter a time of hardship, a time of difficulty, a time of affliction, wherever it's coming from, it may be coming financially, it may be coming in your relationships, it may be coming in your health, wherever it's coming from, let it be a thing that drives you and me to cry out to God, to spend some time with Him, examining ourselves, searching the Scriptures, asking, Lord, I know this, I don't want to waste this difficulty. I don't want to waste this time of trouble. I don't want to waste this pain. Help me to learn from it. What lessons do you want me to learn from this fiery trial I'm going through right now? God wants us to have an especially close relationship to him during those times, just like he wanted those people. Verse two, in the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds, God's certainly humbling them, isn't he? They're hiding in dens. They're hiding in caves, trying to escape. Have you noticed that still happens today? Have you, have you ever read about some of the super wealthy people in the world? Like maybe the Silicon Valley billionaires, some of them have done this. They, how they are prepping in order to survive in these elaborate underground bunkers they built for themselves. I read in an article one time that many of them are in New Zealand, <laughs> but they're all over the world. It's, it's fascinating, actually, to read about these things, and they, they seem pretty cool in a way. <laughs> but all these elaborate, incredibly elaborate, sometimes luxurious, because they've got tons of money, these living quarters, and it's all underground, trying to protect themselves from maybe nuclear holocaust or maybe from disease or whatever. And, you know, I, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying uh, that there's never a time to prepare for an uncertain future, that you could make a pretty good biblical argument for a certain amount of preparation for an uncertain future. You know, maybe it comes under the command that we ought to provide for our families, those kind of things. But, but ultimately, of course, you know this, I don't have to tell you, but no bunker can protect any human being, I don't care how many billions or even trillions of dollars they have, no matter how wealthy they are, from the judgment of God. Do we understand that? We better understand that. And ultimately, God's saying, why don't you let me be your bunker? <laughs> I'll be your hiding place. That's what God tells us. I'll be your mighty fortress. I'll be your shield. I'll be your rock. I'll be your defense. Hide yourself in me. Because these physical bodies of ours are not going to last too much longer anyway. And ultimately, God has got to be where we go to find our security, not in underground bunkers. But here they were building themselves these dens and holes in the earth to try to protect themselves. That's where the Israelites were. They're hiding. They're terrified. Verse 3, For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. 
For they'd come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. So at this point in time, these enemies are not really trying to occupy the land permanently. They're not trying to drive Israel out. They're just letting Israel plant the harvest. And by the time it comes for harvesting, they'll just raid the harvest, steal the crops. Verse 6, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And finally, (laughs) the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Interesting, isn't it? Before God sends them Gideon, he's not talking about Gideon yet. This is a, a different man. He sends them a prophet. And this prophet is going to remind them of how God delivered them in the past. He's also going to remind them that ultimately the problem is not the Midianites. The problem is their own personal sin, their own personal rebellion against God. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son, Gideon, was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. (laughs) And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, we know this is a Christophany or a Christophany, you may want to pronounce it, or theophany. It's a a pre-incarnate visit from Jesus, God the Son. Because when we get to verse 14, he's identified as the Lord, Yahweh in the Hebrew, also verse 16. So it's one of those times when God the Son, who later was the one born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary, lived on this earth sinless, died on the cross for our sins, conquered death, hell, the grave, Satan, rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven. This is the same one, the same man, the same being, the same God. And he's appearing to Gideon. Sometimes he would do that in the Old Testament for very special reasons he would appear. Why is Gideon threshing wheat in the wine press? You pick that up? Normally they would not thresh wheat in wine presses. They would thresh wheat out on the hilltops. Because that way, there's more likelihood of the breeze catching the chaff, blowing it away. It's easier to thresh the wheat if you're you're in a breezy place where the wind can blow the chaff away. But, of course, Gideon was scared. He's afraid of the Midianites. (laughs) If he were on a hilltop, they might see him. (laughs) So he's trying to hide the best he can. Because of his situation, we might imagine the Lord might have just chuckled a little bit here when he said this. I mean, I don't know. It sounds a little bit to me like divine sarcasm, maybe. (laughs) Oh, mighty men of valor. (laughs) who's so fearful of your enemy that you're trying to hide down here at the wine press. (laughs) Yeah, maybe there's a little sarcasm there, but, but actually there's more to it than that because God's going to make Gideon into a true mighty man of valor. It reminds me just a little bit of when Jesus called some of his followers. Remember he went out to a group of fishermen. He said, follow me. I'll make you become fishers of men. I'm going to change your life. He's about to change Gideon's life. He'll change our lives too if we'll let him. 
I'm going to make something out of you, he says, that will bring glory to God. Don't we all want that? I hope that's what you want. And you know, God seems to really enjoy doing that. Have you noticed it? He likes to find men in very ordinary, very humble circumstances, men who don't have much to offer on their own, and he calls them out, and he makes them into these incredible instruments in his hand, and he does amazing things through these ordinary people. Why does God do that? Because that way he gets all the glory, right? I mean, he knows, of course, all the time. But when most people who are in those kind of circumstances realize themselves, I don't have anything to offer God. God says, that's good, because I don't need what you got to offer. I need you to let me fill you and use you. And many times, everybody else knows it, too. They'll look at people like this and say, how could God possibly use him? <laughs> and that's exactly the kind of person God likes to use. The ones that realize, and everybody else realizes, we're too weak, we're too ordinary, there's no way we're going to do any mighty deeds. God doesn't want us to be heroes. You understand that? <laughs> He's the hero. <laughs> he just wants us, and he wanted them, he wanted Gideon, to be a faithful instrument in his hands. That's what he's going to do with Gideon. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord's forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Isn't that a common reaction? <laughs> if the Lord really is with us, why are we in this mess? You ever felt that way? It can be really tempting to pray, Lord, if I'm reading your Bible right, you said you would never leave me. You said you'd be with me forever, even to the end of the age. I remember that. And I believe you're really with me. But if you really are, why are you letting this happen? It doesn't feel like you're with me right now, Lord. Have you been there? You kind of know it, but it doesn't seem to be making sense. But of course, what God's doing is teaching us to trust him and to wait patiently for him knowing that in due time, he will make something happen. He will make everything right. He always does. In the end, he does. He promises. He always keeps his promises. But he's teaching us stuff. Verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? To Gideon, it might have sounded like God's kind of mocking him, you know. What might of mine? I don't have any might. <laughs> what do you think I'm hiding down here in the wine press? <laughs> There's a prayer that Paul prays for the Colossians in the first chapter of Colossians. And verse 11 is part of Paul's prayer for the Colossians. I think it's a wonderful prayer for us to pray for each other, pray for ourselves, pray for other believers. I think it explains Gideon's might. Look at this. Colossians 1.11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, not yours, his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Gideon's going to learn, and we have to learn this too, that God works through us, not according to our might, not according to our power, but according to his might and his power. He can do whatever he wants to do through us if we'll just yield to him. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. It's a good sign. You hear that? I mean, this, this is really good. Gideon realizes his situation. 
God usually won't use us until we realize that. We realize that we're weak. We're unable. We, we have nothing to offer him. We can't. Gideon was weak. Gideon could not save Israel. Gideon knew that. He wasn't much. He understood it. He recognized it. That's really important. Verse 16, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. God didn't say, no, 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 Gideon. Don't, you give, you're giving yourself too little credit. You're not thinking highly enough of yourself. You really aren't weak, Gideon. You can do this. I've got confidence in you, Gideon. You can do anything you set your mind to do, Gideon. That's the way we talk, isn't it? God said, no, Gideon, you're right. <laughs> you can't do it, but I can, and I'll be with you, and I'm going to do it. And once again, some of you are tired of me talking about this, but we are reminded of the trap that so many people in our day fall into when they try to raise kids according to secular humanistic thinking. And there are a lot of Christians doing that. We decide we need to build their self-esteem. This is what humans like to tell kids. Oh, oh, you can do anything. You can do anything you want to do. You can do anything you set your mind to do. There are no limits. You are awesome. But God didn't say that. God says you can't do anything on your own, nothing worthwhile. But if you'll turn your life over to me, God says, if you will trust me, he says, I will take your weak little self and I will do some wonderful things through you. Just realize you don't have what it takes. Don't listen to those humanists. (laughs) Listen to me. Humanists think we need more self-confidence. God says, no, you don't. You don't need more self-confidence. You need Christ confidence. Trust Christ. Don't trust yourself. And what humanists will tend to do is they'll build up a child's pride and ego to the point that they make him an obnoxious little jerk. And that leads to arrogance and that leads to disaster. Or the child will sometimes react in the opposite way and say, well, you said I could do anything and I tried, but I know it's just not true. It's all a lie. You're lying to me. I'm a total failure. And to the first kid, God says, you're wrong. You're not as great as you think you are, kid. But if you will trust me, I will do exciting things through you. And to the second kid, God says, you're right to a point you can't do much. But if you will trust in me, God says, I will do exciting things through you. We just can't leave God out of this calculation, guys. It's so important. We need to teach our kids. We need to teach ourselves. We need to keep our eyes on God, his might, his strength, his power, his wisdom, not ours. Got to get that straight. And we're living in a world who doesn't get it. Verse 17, he said to them, if now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So Gideon asks, show me a sign. And by the way, it's not the first time, the last time he's going to do that. He's going to ask for another sign soon after this. I think it's really important here that we remind ourselves what we're reading here is a historical account of what happened. This is what Gideon did. 
It's a description of what happened. But normally, we've got to be careful when we're reading the Bible. When we're reading historical accounts, we don't see them as being prescriptive. We see them as being descriptive. This is a description of what happened with Gideon. It's not a prescription of what God wants to do with us. Don't get that mixed up. You see, Gideon didn't have the scriptures we have. Gideon didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit that we have. You understand that? God's given us his word, all of it, Old and New Testament. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's also given us godly counselors, and he warns us in his word that there's safety in a multitude of counselors. We need godly counselors. He's also given us some life experiences. He's also given us minds to think with, and, 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 we, and he's given us a, access to him. We can go into his presence anytime in prayer. Guys, listen, it would be wrong and spiritually lazy just to try to bypass all that God's given and say, I'm just, I just want a sign. Lord, just give me a sign. Now, it's true, God will lead us in many different ways. He knows how to open doors. He knows how, he knows how to close doors. God does that a lot. God also gives us godly desires, puts a desire within our heart for things that he's going to lead us into. Sometimes he prompts us internally, just, just an inner prompting to consider something we hadn't thought of before. And, he, and it's an idea and God puts it in our head. We realize looking back on it, this, this was God's leading. But guys, be careful here. It's, it's very possible for God to be leading us in a certain direction with counsel, with his word, with, the, with maybe the inner witness of the spirit in our own hearts. And then we get a little fortune cookie message or something. It seems to be a clear sign in a different direction. Be careful about those clear signs, quote unquote. Don't, don't depend on signs. That's not what God teaches us. Depend on his word, his truth, his spirit, godly counselors. In this case, though, the Lord knew Gideon really did need a supernatural sign. Gideon didn't have all the advantages we have, so God gave him one, and it was pretty spectacular, wasn't it? <laughs> 22, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. <laughs> When Gideon begins to realize what's really happening here, he's terrified. And that's a pretty common reaction. When men encounter the Lord or even one of the angels of the Lord, they normally do not say, how cute. <laughs> no, 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 no. I know we dress up our kids like angels and we say, how cute. Or we have little angel figurines or knickknacks on our shelves, maybe around our Christmas trees. Oh, that's really cute. But in reality, when men come face to face with the Lord or with one of his angels, they're not sure they're going to survive. They're not sure they can live through it. We see that quite often in Scripture. Like You remember when the angels appeared to the shepherds? You remember to announce the birth of Jesus? You remember the shepherds' reaction? They were terrified. And the angels had to say, it's okay, it's okay, don't be afraid. You don't have to be terrified. You remember when Isaiah saw the Lord, the Lord gave him a vision of himself? He was terrified and he was undone. The Lord had to revive him. Remember that? You remember a little bit later in Judges when the angel appeared to Manoah and his wife to tell him about the coming of Samson. He's going to send Samson in chapter 13. Manoah said, we're going to die. We can't live through this. After wrestling with the Lord, this is back in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob said, this is amazing. I've seen the Lord. I'm still alive. <laughs> it didn't make sense to him. When John saw the glorified Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, you know, remember what John did? He fell at his feet like a dead man. You remember that? That's the typical experience. 
But the Lord always reassures his people. He reassures Gideon here. He says, it's okay. It's okay. You're not going to die. Not yet. You will later, but not yet. I'm going to use you. Verse 24, then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. This is one of those wonderful compound names of God. Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah, the Lord, Shalom is peace. It's a beautiful way to talk to God when we're being attacked by fears or worries or stress or depression or anxiety and that kind of stuff. The Lord, my peace, Jehovah, Shalom, I need you, <laughs> need your peace. He goes on to say, to this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abias rites. So Gideon recognizes that God is Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. But it's just interesting. The God of peace is about to do something with him. He's about to send him into battle. Whoa, the God of peace sending him into battle? Seems like an irony, doesn't it? But that's what happens to us too. Charles Spurgeon said this. Look, listen to this quote from Spurgeon. When Gideon is fully at peace, what does he begin to do for God? If God loves you, he will use you either for suffering or for service. And if he's given you peace, you must now prepare for war. Will you think me odd, Spurgeon says, if I say that our Lord came to give us peace, that he might send us out to war? It's true, isn't it? God wants us to have the peace that only he can give he wants to put us, he wants us to put on the shoes of peace. Remember, that's in the Ephesians chapter six, part of the armor of God. But he also insists that we take up the sword of the spirit and go to war against the devil. We're in a battle and we got to stay in the battle with the peace of God. Peace and war, they go together. Verse 25, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that's beside it, and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. <laughs> so immediately God asked him to do something that requires a lot of courage. And a lot of energy. I mean, it sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? He did it at night because he knew if people saw him doing it, they'd try to stop him. That's a reasonable conclusion, I think, based on what happened next. Baal sometimes had took different forms. But sometimes he was seen as a sun god. And Asherah was sometimes seen as a moon goddess. And some of those pagans in that day believed that when Baal and Asherah got together, it assured the fertility of the land. So they had these two pagan gods in their imagination consorting together to lead to good crops. So they worshipped Asherah and Baal for good crops. And sometimes it involved ritual prostitution. It was really disgusting. Very awful pagan worship. So God said, Gideon, I want you to destroy this stuff. Tear it down. You just worship me. <laughs> Verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who's done this thing? <laughs> so these men are horrified. Now they think, oh no, our crops are going to get ruined. <laughs> we're not going to have anything. We were counting on these idols for our sustenance. 
Of course, they should have been counting on God. We know that. They were all mixed up. And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. So he got discovered. And the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? <laughs> Will you save him? Which one's the God here? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a God, let him contend for himself <laughs> because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him <laughs> because he broke down his altar. So these men seem intent on defending these pagan gods, Baal and Asherah. And they go to Gideon's dad, Joash, but Joash tries to use a little bit of reasoning with these guys, use a little common sense. If Baal is so powerful, don't you think he can take care of himself? I mean, he's supposed to be a god, right? I mean, if he's ticked off at my son for tearing down his altar, don't you think he's big enough to take care of himself? Think about it. <laughs> so Gideon got a new name here, Jeroboam. Loosely translated, it means Baal's going to get him. <laughs> but he wore it as a badge of honor and identified him as a identifying with the Lord and being willing to be on Baal's hit list. <laughs> now, listen, guys, there's, there's an application for us here. When we get serious about the spiritual war God's placed us in, it puts us on Satan's hit list. How do you like that? You want to be on Satan's hit list? Some Christians are terrified of that. Just like these guys fear the consequences of offending Baal, I guess. But you know what? We ought to consider it an honor to be on Satan's hit list. Because God says, greater is he who is in you, that's Jesus, than he who is in the world, the devil. Because we overcome him, the Bible says, with the blood of the lamb, with the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives even to the death. Because the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Because for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. He might destroy all the works of the devil. Because he's given us power over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means harm us. Because he said, resist the devil. And he will what? He will flee from you. So if we take the battle to the enemy and get on Satan's hit list, we don't need to be afraid. Satan would like to intimidate us. He'd like to cause us to be afraid. We just need to realize this is a badge of honor. We belong to God. Satan cannot touch us without going through God. God's holding me in his hands. God's got his arms around me. God knows how to protect his kids. We just need to make sure we're doing what God put us here to do, to bring him glory. Verse 33, now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. Needs another side. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning, squeezed the fleece, he wrung out dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just one more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and let on the ground let there be dew. 
And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So once again, in spite of Gideon's doubts, after all God's shown him, God's still willing to give Gideon lots of reassurance. He needed it. I'm going to chase a little bit of a rabbit here because <clears throat> it's just interesting, I think. David Guzik's got an online commentary that you may find helpful in, in when you're reading and studying the Bible. I think he's got a lot of helpful things there. I don't agree with everything Guzik says, but he's got a lot of good stuff. But he's got an interesting comment from the early church father, Origen. Have you ever heard of Origen? Origen may not have really be a Christian, but he was pretty prominent in the church. We don't have to go in, time to go into his life right now. But Origen, and just like some of the early Jewish commentators did in their Tanakh, you know, in, in their Bible, uh, some of the early Christian commentators on the Bible, they often gave over themselves to some pretty radical allegorizing. And according to Guzik, Origen said this. He said, the fleece represents the Jewish people and the area around it represents the Gentiles. And he said the fleece was covered with dew while all around was dry, representing the Jewish nation favored with the law and the prophets. And he said the fleece was then dry and all around was wet with dew, representing that the Jewish nation was cast off for rejecting the gospel and the gospel was preached for the Gentiles and they converted to God. And he said the dew wrung out into the bowl represents the doctrines of Christianity, which are extracted from the Jewish writings. <laughs> This is also shouted forth by Christ pouring water into a basin and washing the disciples' feet. <laughs> now, that's what Origen wrote. And, you know, you might read something like that and say, that's pretty interesting. Uh, it sounds kind of clever. But really what it is, I believe it's a good illustration of the danger of allegorizing too much. We can come up with some very imaginative things, and a lot of men have done this in the past, that come up with some startling interpretations of the Bible that really have nothing to do with what the actual text is saying or teaching. So we need to be really careful about that. You may be tempted to do it yourself. You may at some time hear somebody, supposedly a theologian, who's doing all this allegorizing, and it sounds very clever and amazing, and they may be astonishing in a way. Just watch out. Most of the time, that's not very good hermeneutics. You know what I mean? Good biblical interpretation. We need to read the text and read what God says in the text and not read too much into the text. I'm, don't get me wrong. I want to stay balanced here. There's probably nothing wrong from time to time, like in this passage. Saying, you know what? This fleece reminds me a little bit of, and then you maybe share a little bit of what it reminds you of. But we better be careful and, and stop short of saying something like, what God's teaching us here is this. Watch out. <laughs> Watch out. Allegorizing can lead us way away from Scripture. Now we come to one of the most famous chapters in the book of Judges. It's in all the children's Bible story books. Most of us are familiar with it, but let's read it again. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. This is up in the northern part of Israel, maybe 10 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, a little bit further west. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned. 10,000 remained. We're going to learn in chapter 8, verse 10, that there were 135,000 in the Midianite army. 135,000. 
So it's not too hard to understand why 22,000 of Gideon's men may have thought, this is foolish to go into battle like this against that kind of an army. No way. Yeah, you can see why they had been fearful. And the amazing thing may be that 10,000 were willing to stay. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go every man to his home. So the first culling of the 22,000 was used to send the fearful home. The second culling is a little more difficult to understand. It might be that God got rid of the fearful in the first group and he got rid of the inattentive or the careless maybe in the second group. I don't know, maybe we're reading too much into that. But we do know this. At the beginning, they had been outnumbered already four to one. I mean, you don't go to war when you're outnumbered four to one, do you? Not unless God says to. (laughs) After the first calling, now they're down to 13 to one. For every one Israelite soldier, they're 13 Midianites. And now they're down to 450 to 1. 450 Midianite soldiers for every one Israelite soldier. What's God doing? (laughs) He wants there to be absolutely no doubt that this is going to be a supernatural event. Gideon's not going to deliver Israel from the Midianites. There's no way. God's going to have to do it. God's going to do it. And everyone forever after ought to know This is not the power or the strength or the wisdom or the strategy or the cleverness of Gideon. This is the power of God. That's what God wants us to learn here. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But it's like God saying, Gideon, I know you pretty well. I know you really, really well. If you're afraid to go down, (laughs) I know you, Gideon. (laughs) If you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels without number as the sands on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. This shows us the mercy and patience and perfect timing. Isn't it amazing? The providence of God put all this together. In spite of all he had already shown Gideon, 
He's willing to encourage him some more. He knows Gideon tends to have a fearful heart. So God gives this Midianite soldier a dream and he gives another soldier an interpretation of that dream and he sneaks Gideon in just at the right moment to hear it all. Isn't that amazing? By the way, he mentioned the barley cake. Barley was the grain of the poor people, not powerful people, not influential people. The idea again, God's raising up a little nobody, Gideon. He didn't have any power. He didn't have any influence. And God's going to deliver Midian into his hands. And apparently the word of this dream and its interpretation gets out. So here are the powerful Midianites, but now they're fearful. They're scared. A little Gideon, because that's how God can work. It reminds us we have a very powerful enemy, Satan, the devil, his demons. But you realize they're terrified of the very least weakest believer who knows how to put on the armor of God, who knows how to wield the sword of the spirit. Satan knows he can't stand against God, God's word. Verse 16, and he divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for or of the Lord and of Gideon. You remember what the Midianite man who interpreted the dream had said back in verse 14? This is no other than the sword of Gideon. <laughs> and now the Midianites hear that cry, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. I really don't know how much these Midianites knew about Yahweh. I assume they had some knowledge of the reputation of God from past events and times when he had worked among Israelites. But they do seem to have developed a fear of Gideon here. Do you notice that? And of Gideon's God, even if they didn't understand him very well. And they hear this cry. And it has a potential of striking terror into their hearts. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. It's coming from every direction. <laughs> and you know what? That's what I believe. I believe God teaches in his word. I think it strikes the same kind of fear and dread into the evil, wicked heart of Satan. When he hears the saints cry, I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord with the sword of the Lord. And we begin to quote scripture to him. God tells us that. Ephesians chapter 6, we learn that the sword of the Lord is the word of God. Remember that? Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Satan can't stand against the word of God. Gideon's enemies were the Midianites. Our enemies are the devil and his demons. But we don't need to be afraid of these enemies. We just need to know how to keep our armor in place, how to use the sword of the Lord. Look at verse 21. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and they fled. Our spiritual enemies will react the same way. You remember? God promised it. He said, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will what? He will flee from you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for putting this book in your word. It's an incredible book, and we've just had to skim around the surface a little bit, touch the tip of the iceberg a little bit. We know, Lord, there's much more here than we've had time to cover. 
But we thank you for using it to remind us of how tempting it can be to be attracted to the gods of this world, to be attracted to ungodly thinking. Lord, we see it all around us. We see people who call themselves Christians who are listening too much to celebrities, to so-called brilliant PhDs in our educational schools and universities and to politicians in some cases and to wealthy people in other cases, to entertainers, singers. And Lord, they're hearing a false message and they're being drawn away to other gods. And Lord, we know it leads to destruction. So please help us, your kids, keep our heads on straight and keep our focus on you so that you can work through us to accomplish your purposes as long as we live in this flesh. We thank you for reminding us, as in this wonderful account of Gideon, that you are able to defeat every enemy, and you've given us all the tools we need, all the weapons we need, all the armor we need to stand firm, stay in the battle, to not be afraid until it's all over. So Lord, help us never to be fearful of this world or the demons or the powers in this world but help us instead to focus on you and to be fearful of disobeying you, to be fearful of not listening to you, to be fearful of not trusting you. Lord, help us not to fear the world. And Lord, please, here we are. Any way you want to use us, it may be small in the world's eyes. It doesn't matter. We just want to be available to you to use us as you choose. We recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. But when you fill us with your strength, your spirit, your power, you can do things through us that will bring you glory. So would you please do that? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.